0: Hey everyone, this is Chad Harms, the pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thanks for taking some time to listen to my latest sermon, a sermon about how people in church should treat each other. It will play in just a minute, but before it does, I want to make one announcement and ask for one favor. First, I want to tell you about our VBS. Every year, our VBS reaches and impacts a lot of kids. This year, it will be July 15th through 19th. And if you have kids in our area, please head to wilsonville.church VBS. There you can learn all of the details you'll need and you can register. You definitely won't regret having your child attend, I promise. The favor I want to ask is simple. If you find this podcast valuable, it would be great if you left us a rating and review. I know I've said this before, but leaving ratings and reviews helps this content be heard by more people. I know it sounds like a long shot, but helping more people hear this might change a life. Think about it. I mean, taking a minute to type a few words about how you've been impacted could literally impact another person for eternity. And So please do that, like I said, if you've been impacted by this podcast. Thanks again for taking time to listen. I really do hope this sermon will help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God.
1: All right, so this is coming off the heels of uh, last week's sermon, which was over how we can effectively love one another. And in this case, it's how we can effectively love each other. And the distinction is that how do we love fellow Christians? Because if people on the outside of Christianity look in and they say, my goodness, they can't even effectively love each other. How could they possibly live out that calling to love others outside of Christianity? And so, the verse um, that this will spring from is Romans chapter 14, verse 19, that says, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. And Paul says this line in the context of Romans chapter 14, where he's looking out and he is seeing rampant disagreement and quarreling among Christians. They are not getting along. They're not seeing eye to eye. And he's he's wondering why they're getting caught on what he calls these disputable matters. He calls them disputable matters in Romans chapter 14, verse 1. And in this case, this particular case in Romans chapter 14, they're wondering what's allowed to eat? What can people drink? What days are holy or are not holy? And they're disagreeing and they're fighting. And, and Paul therefore is writing to say, look, you need to love each other despite these disagreements Over these disputable matters. So, this is an internal memo. This is talking to Christians and saying, look, get your act together. You're not going to see eye to eye on everything. You need to love one another. And the reality, when I was reflecting on this, I was thinking about the ways in which Christians disagree. And I was thinking, my goodness, we disagree a lot we even quarrel sometimes over these disputable matters. I was, uh, I thought about uh, my childhood, for instance, um, my, my mother and one of her friends often disagreed about what kids could watch. Um, I, I, a, a bizarre memory, my mom is, is denying that this ever occurred by the way, so I'll put that proviso. Um, but I, there were a lot of things that I could watch growing up um, I couldn't watch something like The Simpsons because, you know, the, the father would choke the son sometimes when he got angry, uh, and uh, they would say things that weren't always the most appropriate themes. Uh, I couldn't watch The Simpsons. Um, I couldn't watch a show called Ren and Stimpy, though my dad watched it one time and I saw him laughing. I do remember that. Um, but, bizarrely, I don't know where this came from, I couldn't watch a show called Care Bears. I couldn't, it, was, it wasn't allowed, and it's because these Care Bears would care for people using the magic of love. That's right, magic. And I remember going over to my friend's house, uh, they were brothers, Lance and Chase, and I went over to their house, and if they put on Care Bears, I had to walk out of the room and said, look, I'm better than this. I can't watch Care Bears. You know, there's magic in it. Can't you put something sensible on, like Power Rangers, right? Where a bunch of teenage boy and girls get into supersuits and fight these summoned monsters? That's better. And so I, I, I remember this bit that this um, uh, comedian—he's getting more and more popular. His name's John Chris. He's a Christian comedian, and he asked some of his followers to send them. Uh, the reasons that they weren't allowed to watch certain shows uh, in their Christian household. In fact, I actually, I've got a a few more because I asked some of you um, some of those shows. Uh, One of them was uh, they couldn't watch Little Mermaid um, because Ariel disobeyed her father. Uh, Bambi, uh, because it's against hunting and the Second Amendment. I don't know how how those became essentially Christian things, but okay. Oh, Care Bears, of course, is on here because uh, it's demonic. I mean, mine was it was magic. I don't I remember demons, but. Um, Harry Potter, of course, because witchcraft. Uh, Rugrats, because uh, Angelica was disrespectful. Uh, um, magic School Bus, because magic on that one, of course. Uh, Land Before Time, uh, because evolution. Uh, and also Pokemon, because evolution. I heard that one. Uh, Cat Dog which is about a cat and a dog that are, like, put together. Um, and that's because that's not how God intended it. <laughs> uh, Smurfs. I heard some few, few different ones for Smurfs. Um, one was, uh, there, I guess there was a magic character and also communism. Um, and Bill Nye, of course, because science. So one, <laughs> I don't it's weird. We don't always see eye to eye. And one of the things that we can at least agree about as Christians is that we don't see eye to eye on a lot of things. In fact, I, I work in, uh, in Christian education. Uh, I'm a teacher, so I'm around uh, kids all the time. And by extension, I'm around the kids' parents, or at least the parents' values, right? And so you see this, this wide variety of differences if, if it's, um, you know, when a kid can date, right? You'll have... Kids uh, don't have a limit at all. Maybe it's 14, maybe it's 15, maybe it's 16, maybe it's 18, maybe it's when you move out and you're responsible for yourself. right? There is differences in what you can wear, when you can wear it, how you can wear it. There are uh, differences in hygiene, certainly, I can tell you. Some parents are teaching different values with respect to when you ought to take a shower. There are. Uh, Differences in uh, dancing. My school doesn't allow dancing because it was, there were so many uh, parents conflicted on this issue. We just said no dances at all. And in fact, I heard one parent describe dancing this way. They said dancing is a vertical expression of a horizontal desire. (laughs) Okay. I mean, I think we've all seen dancing that at least does verify that sentiment right? And so, we disagree. And man, you can see this, when Halloween rolls around, you'll have parents that won't even say the word, right? It's Harvest Festival, thank you very much. And some parents won't let their kids trick or treat, some will, right? Some parents will let their kids dress up, some will not. I remember going to a um, Harvest Festival uh, when I was growing up as a kid, and uh, there was uh, a family that had three children. One of them was an angel, very cute young uh, girl. One of them was King David, and one of them was a vampire. I thought, well, that kid is going to need some extra attention, right? And so, we disagree. And in the same way, Paul is surveying the landscape Of the churches and seeing Christian brethren disagreeing in this way and they're fighting and they're quarreling. And he says, Wait a minute, stop. Quit it. He doesn't say, Quit having disagreements. He's saying, Quit fighting over things that do not ultimately affect our eternal placement. He's saying, Our eternity with Jesus does not ultimately rest on these things. Quit making mountains over molehills. And so if I were to summarize Romans chapter 14, I thought a lot about it, but if I were to just put it into a really pithy statement, it would be this. We're called to have compassion, without compromise. So, compassion for fellow believers with whom we may disagree over these disputable matters, but compassion that is not compromising our Christian conscience. We don't have to compromise Christian truth in order to get along with fellow Christians over these disputable matters. And in fact, every generation of Christians has had to determine uh, what beliefs and behavior are morally mandated for all believers and and what beliefs and behavior can be left up to the individual believer in their their own conscience. And the distinction is ultimately rooted in Scripture. For instance, there are things um, that if we were to do them, consistently and persistently, we were to live in this rebellion and, and be unrepentant in these acts. It says so in 1 uh, Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 10, that there are certain behaviors that if we were to do, we would not inherit the kingdom of God. But also, here in Romans chapter 14, there are certain things that we can disagree about. But also, in Romans chapter 14, 1, Verse one, where he uses this um, disputable matters. He also makes reference to weaker Christians and later to stronger Christians. That there's this distinction. And so I, w- I want to be clear uh, what this is, because weak. Uh, some people think like, wow, that's really mean, calling somebody a weak Christian. Um, and it's weak in the sense that they haven't yet fully realized the extent of their freedom in Christ. And it makes perfect sense. Beca- I, I, I will give you my, uh, my own example, a little bit of my own testimony um, when I had an epiphany during my junior year of high school. Um, I was not, um, I, I would be Christian by name only. That's what I would call myself, Christian by name only. My, I grew up in an incredible Christian environment, Christian home with great Christian parents who influenced me the best they could, but ultimately it was my choice. And in, in the public school I was in and uh, the people I was around, sometimes I didn't want to be a Christian and I wasn't living a Christian life. And I remember I was in choir. I was in choir because, um, well, frankly, mostly because there were cute girls in choir. Uh, but I was in choir and I was exchanging handwritten, you remember handwritten notes, right? Okay, yeah, yeah, thank you. I was exchanging handwritten notes with um, a girl whom I thought was pretty, and she liked me um, because um, I was Christian, see, but she didn't know that I was uh, not really Christian, right? And we were exchanging these notes back and forth, and I wrote a a note to her that was terrible. I don't remember it because God has allowed me to forget. Um, But one uh, one of the things I said, I won't repeat it, but it was just, oh man, I didn't like it. It really, (laughs) that one line stuck with me. And she wrote me back in this note. And this phrase forever changed my life. It seriously did. It shook me to my very bones. She said, that's not me. Basically, she looked at everything I said and she said, that's not me. That's not who I am. I, I don't identify with the type of person that you're presenting yourself to be. That's not me. That was the breakup before the breakup kind of thing, right? Before we were together, it was like, I don't even want anything to do with you because what you're presenting, that's not me. And I went, I went home. See, I was shook by this. I went home, and I, and I read this again because I had actually typed up the note prior to handwriting it because I wanted to make sure I spelled everything right. Uh, very concerned, very weird way of doing it, but that's, uh, that's what I did. And, I, and I, I read this note, and I'm thinking, man, if that's me, I don't like it either. I don't like me. And I, and I prayed, I, I prayed, God, man, I want you to make yourself real to me. I want, I want you to prove to me that you are involved in my life, right? And I was hoping sometimes you could catch me staring at a light and be like, God, if you're a real man, make that thing flicker. Okay, not yet, but I'll give you five minutes, right? I would do that. And, and so my way, I'm thinking God's going to make himself real to me in some way like that, right? And I kid you not, I go to school and I get asked to stay after class by a teacher named Mrs. Gerber. I don't remember very many of my high school teachers, but she I will never forget. Mrs. Gerber held me after class. Now, know this, I don't really know Mrs. Gerber. I was kind of the lay low student, right? I fly under the radar, I get things done. Don't bother me and I won't bother you. Well, she pulls me after class and she says this to me, Matthew, you need to change your life. And I said, what? She says, I want you to do something for me. And I said, this is really weird. (laughs) First of all, uh, what do you mean? And she knew uh, apparently that my father, she didn't have a relationship with my father, but she knew that my father was a Christian professor. He taught theology. And she she handed me this book that had a story in it called Parker's Back by an author named Flannerly O'Connor. And she wrote that story, Parker's Back, when she was in the hospital three weeks prior to her death. And she filled this story, Parker's Back, with all kinds of Christian symbolism. And she handed me this book and she said, Matt, I can't teach this. I can't teach this because there's too much Christian symbolism, and this is a public school, but you can." And She handed me the book, Parker's back, and she said, you're going to teach this next week. It wasn't, do you want to, right? Can I ask you to do this? It was, you're going to teach this next week. And I'm thinking, I don't, I, I don't really know my Christian stories all that well. I remember the big ones like Moses and the big stick. And I take this book, I don't know if my father remembers, I take this book and the first thing I do is I, I hand it to him, and I say, dad, I need to know every single Christian image, symbol, analogy, whatever. I need to know it all in this book. I need to know it, and so he goes over this story with me, and I am seeing for the first time really my own stories, my own Christian stories in a new light, and I am falling in love with them. I'm like, this is awesome, and then I get to teach this before my class. I get to talk about how God is working, and even these other stories that people are right, it's bringing a new light, and I, I see the hunger That my fellow public school classmates have for this. And I know it's a hunger because when I'm teaching it, I have it myself. And I'm like, man, I want more of this. And I remember my life radically changed. But this is one of the things that I did. This is one of the I I went home and I broke all of my non-Christian CDs. I, I bent them, I crushed them, I broke them all. And I mean, the reality is there's really nothing inherently wrong with Cher asking the question, do you believe in life after love? There's something inside of me saying, I really don't think you're strong enough. That was one of the songs. A, a lot of the music that I was listening to was not like bad, right? It was like, you're my aching kryptonite. But, but for me, For me at that time in my life, that music was part of a person that I no longer wanted to be. I wanted to get as far away from who I was so that I could look at that and say, that's not me anymore. And so when Paul is referring to weaker Christians, in many ways, he's just referring to those people who in their escape from one life to the Christian life may have left behind more than they needed to. But it's, it's what they needed. Uh, for me, I couldn't in, in my... In, in a, in, In my conscience, listen to that music without thinking, no, 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 that's not who I want to be anymore. I want to focus totally on this. I can't do that anymore. And so, for a season, I I couldn't listen to it. It, I didn't feel right about it. And uh, I mean, now in my life, there's a um, very popular music artist now, or he's getting even more popular by the name NF. Anyone hear NF? Okay, some people. NF. He's a Christian. He's a professing Christian. He's um, got some great music, but he, he says, I am a Christian, but I'm not, I don't make Christian music. It's, he says, um, it's, it's kind of like a, uh, a, a plumber who's a Christian. They're not a Christian plumber, right? They're not putting Christian pipes under your sink, right? It's not like, this one I prayed over. This one's going to hold extra strong, right? The epoxy is godly epoxy, Right, he just says, I, I'm a Christian, and I make music. And he has this incredible, um, incredible song called, Why Do You Leave Us? And it is a song about his mother who died of an opiate overdose and left he and his siblings behind. And it is just a lament of a son who is angry, who is confused, who is broken, who is sad, and who misses his mother. See, and I can listen to that. I have no qualms with that, even though it's not a worship song, it's not explicitly Christian. I've I've come farther now. I understand some of my liberties in Christ. And so, Paul then is is looking at it in this way. He's saying, look, you, you can have compassion for people who are at different stages in their life, right? Some people, for them, doing certain things is a product of a life they want to escape. It was different in Paul's days what they were escaping from. But we still, in in our Christian journey, everybody has come from a different background. Everybody has come from a different place. People have different baggage. And we, as Christians, rather than disputing over these things, rather than quarreling over these small things, he says, remember what's important. But before we can do that, when you are getting in a disagreement, the first thing you have to do, if you want to have compassion without compromise, you need to know whether or not what you're dealing with is a disputable matter. And so that's the first thing I want to focus on is, is it a disputable matter? And I want to read um, a little bit more of the context in Romans chapter 14 verses 14 through 23. And it says this: "I am convinced being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus." that nothing is unclean in itself. He's talking about food. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person, it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. That's the the verse we started with. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but... It is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves, but whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat because their eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. So, as an example of a disputable matter for Paul in his time, he looks at those who refuse to eat meat for spiritual reasons. They either refused meat uh, because it was uh, maybe offered as a sacrifice to a pagan god, which was very common, or because Uh, they were afraid that it wasn't kosher if they're coming from a Jewish background, and they haven't been able to put behind them yet those dietary restrictions as a Jew. And the reality is that these um, celebrations or these sacrifices were so immersed in the social and civic life at the time. So Paul is writing in a Hellenistic environment. That is, it's a, a Greek and Roman environment And there was no separation of church and state. There were more idols than there were people. And people who were sick or had other things going on, they were always trying to appease whatever the next God was. And in doing this, um, there arose a problem as a Christian. Because what, what would happen is that they had these thing called Ithmian games, uh, where they would, for instance, um, worship the sea god, Poseidon. And they would have all kinds of sacrifices. And what did they do with the meat afterwards, after these sacrifices? Well, they sold it. So, it would go to the marketplace. And so, many people who were not observers or believers would buy this meat, not thinking twice. And while Christians could avoid the ceremonies, they could avoid the places where they were offering um, these sacrifices, now they couldn't always avoid confronting this meat. Sometimes you didn't know at the marketplace where this meat came from. So that's why it said some people didn't meet at all. They didn't eat meat at all. They said, "Because I can't verify the origin of this meat, I'm just going to be a vegetarian." because I want to make sure that I never get any of that second-hand idolatry. And there were some who were saying, well, wait a minute, I don't believe in idols. There's nothing that an idol can do to change the substance of the meat, so I'm perfectly fine in eating this. But then to, to make it more awkward and more strange, you had people who you might be invited over to eat at someone's house, right? You had Uh, family and colleagues and, and other people who could be devotees of another god. You don't know whether or not that meat had already been sacrificed and sanctified for the sake of some other idol. You don't know that. So, what do you do? And this is the problem that they're dealing with at the time. For some people who escaped that life They escaped the life of idols. One thing that they left behind was the meat entirely. They said, that reminds me too much of my old life. I can't eat that meat in good conscience knowing where it came from. I can't do it. And to give you an example, this is actually still happening uh, today for some people. I remember a few years ago I was talking to a um, Korean missionary. And one of the things that was happening is that Uh, In Korea, they have a thing called jesa, which is uh, when they sacrifice a meal to their ancestors. And so if you were to go over to somebody's home, one thing that they might do is that prior to you eating the food, they have these memorial tablets that represent the spiritual presence of their ancestors, and that there's, their ancestors are going to partake of that meal with them, and they get to have it first. So they lay out these memorial tablets, the food that they prepare, they leave it first in this room with these memorial tablets, and they leave it there for a little bit. And they leave it until the, um, they, they change it up how it's done now, it, but it used to be that the oldest male would clear his throat twice, <coughs> and that would symbol, we can go in now. Now, there could be a younger son that, that does it, but it's by and large very similar. And they'll go into this room, and they'll spread this meal out, and they'll enjoy this meal that was already given to the ancestors. And so, some of the Korean missionaries had a real big problem with this. I don't want to tacitly approve this ancestral worship, and my eating doesn't do that. And others are saying, look, I I don't believe in it. It doesn't affect the food, right? Nothing has changed with the food because it's, it's meaningless to me. I can eat the food with a free conscience. And others are saying, if I were to eat of it, I would feel like I was approving. Well, guess what? If that person who's feeling that way and says, I I don't know that I can do it with a clear conscience, and they do it anyways, well, Paul says, you've done wrong. You've done wrong. So there is something with our motive, with our heart, right? It's the wrongness of a behavior is not simply located in the behavior itself, but in the heart of the person performing it. Jesus had had done this already. People said, well, murder's wrong. That's true. And Jesus says, hate is too. I want to locate where the root of the problem comes from, and it is the heart. And if your heart's not right, if your motive is wrong, then that thing that is clean for you becomes unclean. And so, while this is not totally relevant for most of us, you're not all Korean missionaries, I suspect. There are still disputable matters, some of which I've already gone over, but there are disputable matters that we have, you know, whether it's the dating or card playing or drinking or dancing. I think we've all heard of people who disagree about this, there are probably disagreement in this room and that's fine but there's even more than that, right? If, if we were to survey our Christian landscape and see what other people are seeing, there is uh, disagreement theologically. My goodness, there are Wesleyans and Calvinists and Baptists and Anabaptists. There are Lutherans and Pentecostals. There's a disagreement over ecclesiology. That's how a church should be run, the church governance. Should we be Episcopal, Presbyterian, congregational? People disagree about these things. And Paul is saying, despite all that theological diversity among Christian brethren, despite it being manifold and everywhere, You're not going to agree on every dot and tittle, so we have to recognize what's paramount and what's truly important. And this, uh, I'm going to teach you sort of a big word. Um, Traditionally, those matters over which we can agree to disagree has been labeled adiaphora. Adiaphora. It actually comes from Martin, Martin Luther, who was in charge of the Protestant Reformation of 1517 when he broke from the Roman Catholic Church. He had a second-hand man named Philip, Philip Melanchthon, and he came up with this term, adiaphora. And it's been called indifferent things. They're indifferent things in the sense that all sides view them as ultimately unimportant with respect to somebody's salvation. Um, so, According to Paul, you know, now people will view them as important. For instance, at that time, it was very important to, to me not to listen, listen to Christian music. So it's not important in the sense that uh, some people don't view them that way, but unimportant with respect to whether or not somebody's salvation rests upon this. Uh, it doesn't prevent someone from inheriting the kingdom of God. And so we, we refer to them as disputable matters because we can go one way or the other. But if there are disputable matters, I want to be very clear, there are also indisputable matters. Scripture, for instance, speaks about uh, uh, murder, hate, lust, adultery. These things are indisputable. The Old and New Testament are very clear on things. God has judged these things. He's spoken about these things already. In fact, Christians are told to exhort, to rebuke, and to hold other people accountable, other Christians accountable to these things. In fact, Matthew 19 says sometimes we might even need to discipline one another in order to keep these things true and in the church. But... We're not supposed to be judging each other, and that's because the things like murder and lust and adultery have already been judged. They've already been judged. God has already pronounced judgment on those things, and so we know where we stand. And some some other things are very easy. I will give you an example of uh, the resurrection. If you want to be a Christian you have to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's part and parcel of what it means to be Christian. And I, I mean, if, if we didn't believe in the resurrection, then one, we, we'd be living in sin still. Everything we believe would be futile. We would believe in people who were liars. We'd be affirming a lie. And everything would essentially be meaningless. And so these, these things that we have to believe, in order to be a christian are traditionally known as either essential christian doctrine or dogma dogma sometimes gets a bad name but those beliefs that you have to believe so if someone comes up to you and says look i'm a christian but i don't believe jesus christ was a real person you can safely say you're not a christian doesn't make any sense right it doesn't i i believe that this building was built by architects Uh, But I don't believe architects exist. Those beliefs are mutually exclusive. It makes no sense, right? It'd be like saying I believe there can be married bachelors or squared circles, right? They're 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 mutually opposing. And the analogy that I would use is um, um, just if you could imagine for a second—I don't want to draw this out here—if that you were um, the whole world ended. I like thinking about these sorts of things. That's weird. You know, like the dystopian endings of things and, you know, government ends or whatever. But imagine this is total Planet of the Apes type thing, right? Everything is, uh, is covered in, in huge layers of sediment and all of our history is forgotten. And uh, this uh, thousand years from now, humanity is still around, more primitive, and they're d- rediscovering are past, and they see these roadways littered with these weird things with wheels, and they come to find out while studying our, our weird language that we refer to these things as cars or vehicles. And there's this movement that grows, this movement that looks at these things and says, you know what? I think that these things, cars, moved. Not only that, they moved by some internal power source. They could move from point A to point B. And there are people who say, no, 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 these are statues or monuments to dead robots or whatever, right? There are are people who disagree and say, no, 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 these things didn't move, it doesn't make any sense. And then there's this other group, and we'll call them the Great Movement. They believe that these things moved. They all agree that if you wanna be a part of the great movement, you have to agree that cars moved by internal power. And then and then you have the really like high up people in the, in the great movement and they're opening up the engine and, the, and uh, the, trun- the front, whatever, car, whatever, they're opening up the front part, the hood, huh, there it is. <laughs> and they're looking at the engine, right? And they're studying and someone's saying, look, I think this thing ran on air. Not entirely wrong, you need an air intake. And another person says, no, 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 this had some sort of source. You see this pipe going to this tank? It had some sort of liquid source that helped it move. That's true, right? And they're disagreeing over how this thing could move, right? And then they start fighting, and they're saying, it moved this way. No, it moved this way. And Paul would look at that and say, shut up. It moves. It moves. It moves. You don't always have to know how or why. Just believe that it moves, right? In the same way, Christ died for you and it worked. You don't always have to know how or why it worked. You know, you have the people saying it was penal substitution. And others saying it was the satisfaction theory. It was the ransom theory. It was all of these ideas of how atonement worked. But the reality is this. Don't spend your time quarreling over these things. Just know what is essential to believe and make that what's important. Don't make the dot and tittle important. Don't make mountains over molehills. Don't make issues where there doesn't need to be an issue. I am guilty of doing this wrong. I, I'll tell you, when I was in, uh, uh, in the youth group at this church, actually, when we met in Towalton at a uh, Christ Community Church, it was a Reformed church. If you don't know Reformed theology, that's fine. They believe in a thing called TULIP, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. That's theological stuff. Ba-ba-ba-ba-ba. Who cares, <laughs> right? And, and I, you know, I like to argue. I do. It's a problem. Ask my wife. And I, there was this girl. She's a sweet girl. She, I'm a youth leader, mind you. And uh, she believes this stuff, and I'm thinking, I am going to get her to change her mind. Right? And I write out this essay of why she's wrong about all these things. And I just lay into her. Like, don't you know that you're wrong? I want you to be right, but you're wrong. Right? Man, I could just tell as I'm, I'm laying into her that I, I'm really putting her off. Right? Where, where love should overflow, I had, alo- I had allowed instead quarrelsome things to overflow. Where, where I should have let my love overflow, I let problems reign. We don't need to do that. We all agree that the car moved. We all agree that Christ rose from the dead and it worked. And it worked. And if we spend our time over these disputable things, Paul says we're not making anybody stronger. All we're doing is causing weaker people to stumble. We are creating roadblocks where we should be creating freedom of movement. So, wow, okay. The second point I wanted to make then that flows out of this is that we shouldn't be flaunting our freedom. Because what Paul does in verse 14 is he states an assumption that helps explain how this can be such a big issue, how the eating meat can be a big issue. He says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. So, you see what he's explaining? He's answering the question, how can eating and drinking something that you believe is, uh, is clean, how can eating and drinking something that you think is clean... wrong. Really, there's nothing at stake here, right? You can't, if, if there's nothing wrong with it, then someone who eats it has done nothing wrong. That's just what follows, isn't it? No. Paul's response to that is to agree that all foods are clean. And then he goes on to explain how they can become unclean, right? It's like saying that if you eat food that isn't poisoned, you're not going to be poisoned. And that's what people are thinking. And Paul is saying, well, the poison isn't coming from the food itself. The poison is the poison that you provide. So, uh, we already know that Paul agrees that all food is clean. In fact, he uses this argument. He agrees with it because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He uses that as a justification when the Corinthians were having this same problem. He uses that in 1 Corinthians 10, 26. Uh, he, he could have also quoted Jesus in Mark seven fifteen. Jesus said this, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. And Mark later in Mark 7, 19 explains this and says, this is Jesus declaring all food clean. So in themselves, all foods are clean, but he does not agree, Paul that is, that nothing is at stake with how you eat what is clean. And he he makes this clear in verse 14. He says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is clean in itself, but, 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 it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. So the clean food becomes unclean for me if I think it is unclean when I eat it. And the reason is because it's not coming from faith. If I do something that I think is wrong, I've done something wrong because it's not coming out of an overflow of joy and contentment that I have in Jesus. It's not, in my opinion, coming from the freedom that I have in Jesus. It's coming from some sort of other pressure. I feel like I need to do this. I feel like I want to do this. Um, uh, And uh, an example I would use, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit, is. Imagine two Christians, a first-century Christian, two first-century Christians. One's Demetrius and the other is Clement. Those are first-century names. And both of them are former idolaters, okay? So they, both of them used to sacrifice meat to some sort of idol. And when they gave up their old way of life, Demetrius said, I need to cut everything out right? I am not going to sacrifice to idols. I'm not going to go to their shrines, and I'm certainly not going to eat any meat that's coming from those things. And Clement, in the same way, says, I'm not going to participate in those sacrifices or go to those shrines. But now that I know, now that I know that those idols are just meaningless, empty things, and, they, and nothing has effectively changed with the meat, I can eat the meat, And so Demetrius and Clement have concluded different things. One of them has a free conscience to eat it, and one of them does not. And then all of a sudden, Demetrius and Clement see each other at the market. And and what does Demetrius see? He sees Clement buying this meat. And so he he confronts him. He says, Clement, what are you doing? We've escaped that way of life, right? We've escaped that way of life. Don't do it. And... Rather than talking to him, he tempts him and he scoffs and he says, my goodness, don't you realize the freedom that we have here? Have some. And Demetrius says, no, 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 I can't, I can't. And then Clement cuts off a piece and he hands it to him and says, look, you can eat it. It's okay. And Demetrius eats the meat. Not because he has a free conscience to do it, but because he's pressured by another believer to do it. His mind isn't clear. It doesn't sit right with him. But he was tempted by another believer to defy his conscience. What would Paul say about this? He would say both people sinned. Why? Because Demetrius defied his conscience. He went again, he did something and ate food that he thought was unclean, and because his motives were not pure, his heart was not in the right place, it was unclean for him. And Clement was wrong because instead of just talking, instead of of just telling him why he was doing those things and not tempting him to, to replicate his behavior, right, he got him to defy his conscience. Paul calls us not to flaunt our freedom. If someone comes over to your home, for instance, and you like a glass of wine with your meal, but they don't drink at all, well, what do you do? Well, Paul's clear. You don't flaunt your freedom, right? You don't say, come on, just have a glass. You can do it. The Bible's fine with it. Timothy, right? Paul had Timothy drink wine. Jesus made wine at a wedding. Come on, just drink it. You don't know their story. You don't know what's, what they came out of. Maybe they came out of a life of alcoholism. Maybe they have saw people in their family, and for them, it, it is too much a part of an old life, right? Sometimes when you escape to Christianity, getting close even to the life you once had is too tempting. And so you make walls where you have to in order to stay away from those things. Don't flaunt your freedom. Now, if, if that happens, right, where those people are getting together and you disagree, that's when you talk. You don't, you don't tempt people into doing what you're doing or scoff people, right? It says weaker Christians don't have contempt for the stronger Christians. Stronger Christians don't try to tempt the weaker Christians into doing things. You can talk and say, well, this is what I believe, but I'm going to respect that, right? Respect and love each other despite the differences in those disputable matters is what Paul says, and uh, the next thing, if, if we are um, understanding what disputable matters are, right, those matters upon which our salvation doesn't rest, upon which we can, we can agree to disagree, that we Christians need to not flaunt our freedom for other people because that creates a stumbling block. It's teaching people that they can defy their conscience, and they shouldn't be doing that which leads just naturally into the last point is that we need to be willing to sacrifice. Paul makes it very clear that loving other people does not stem from what we are able to do, but rather from what we are willing not to do for the sake of others. In fact, in the early church that was dealing with this problem of food, they had Jews and Greeks coming together in, in Acts chapter 15, it was the uh, Syrian Antioch church. And Jews were not wanting uh, to, to accidentally eat meat sacrificed to idols. And Greeks said, it, what do you mean? Just The meat is just meat. The idols are fake. It doesn't matter. And they were disagreeing and they were fighting. And so in Acts chapter 15... The solution that they actually came up with was, you know what? This is causing too much dissension, and even though there's technically nothing unclean about this food, we're just going to recommend that nobody eats food sacrificed to idols. With that ruling from the Jerusalem council, they were saying there is a need for deference. There is a need for consideration of the scruples of others. This is a principle of self-denial that we should be willing to lay down our personal rights for the sake of maintaining unity in the body of Christ. So just don't think about what you can do. You ought to be thinking about what other people are seeing you do. Now, I, uh, when I wanted to illustrate this truth to my son, I wrote a story. I wrote a story called Purdy Plumps. Uh, it was about these birds um, that had these really long wings and long legs, and they would eat these things called flurps, okay? I was being creative. And, uh, but one day, uh, there was this uh, runt of the litter, so to speak. It was a purdy plump that had really short legs and really small wings, and it couldn't fly. And all of the flurps had been eaten up, so all the purdy plumps took off, except for, of course, this lonely purdy plump, who had no friends, he had nobody. And then he had to start eating these things that that purdy plumps didn't eat. He ate these things called squirchy scabbles, okay? Which looked gross, but in fact tasted pretty good. Then all of a sudden, this big purdy plump flies into the scene. He goes there with this purdy plump, and he lives with this purdy plump for a while, and he actually eats the squirchy scabbles, and they become friends. And I want to read you the the end of this, and this is when the squirchy scabbles are going away, and the the purdy plump's getting afraid because he's going to lose his friend. His friend's going to leave. And he can't follow because he's got, you know, small wings and short legs. This is it. It rhymes, by the way. It says, time has passed as all time does, and the squirchy scabble waned. Our pretty Plump grew very scared. His heart was low and pained. He knew his traveler Plump would not stay with squirchy scabble gone, so he tossed and turned all night, staying awake until dawn. When the big and brawny plump woke up with nothing left to eat, he went to our dear pretty plump and at his feet he took a seat. All the squishy scabble is gone from all the land. It is time to leave, even though it was not planned. The little pretty plump with wings all weak and weary walked away with eyes of sorrow, his face all cold and dreary. I know you must leave. I wish that I could follow. But I cannot fly or run. I am so weak. I am so hollow. The big purdy plump with wings as strong as any got up and showed him why he was not like the many. I did not come to eat your food and leave you all alone. It's true, your legs are small and your wings have never flown. But we don't need to fly and your legs, they still can walk. So come with me, dear purdy plump. We can do it while we talk. And so the two Purdy Plumps did not fly or even run. Instead, they trekked together, holding wings towards the sun. And though the food was gone and their adventure did not end, we may rest easy, for our dear Purdy Plump had finally found a friend. And when I was writing that story for my son, the, the point that I wanted to illustrate was that it's not always about what you can do, but rather about what you're willing not to do for the sake of other people. And as Christians, if we want to effectively love people outside the church, we need to demonstrate our love for people within it. And sometimes, in order to prevent unnecessary Disputes and disagreement. It's about us being willing to sacrifice the things that we have freedom to do in Christ. But we sacrifice it for the sake of other people who maybe at that time it's too hard for them to do, right? Maybe it is playing cards with somebody who has a problem with playing cards, right? Don't dance around somebody who doesn't dance. That would be a weird thing to do, anyways. But the point I want to stress is that we can have compassion for our fellow believer without compromising the truth. But you have to remember what the truth is. You have to remember what's important. You have to know that every disagreement is not a battle you need to fight. And I say that we do that by knowing the disputable matters. We do that love each other compassionately without compromise by knowing what the truth is and knowing what's important in the truth. So I, I leave you with that, that we don't want to flaunt our freedom and we wanna sacrifice for the sake of other people. Because if we can effectively love each other within the church, we are far more useful to those outside it. So please pray with me. Lord, I just thank you so much that you are a God who works in our hearts and understands our motives. God, I pray that we would be Christians who have joy and freedom in you. God, but we would not flaunt our freedom to those who have a difference of opinion, God, that we would not try to force other people into things that they're uncomfortable with, God, that we would encourage people to follow the conscience that you gave us. God, I thank you so much for how you convict us. I thank you so much for how you move, God, and I just pray that we would be a body of believers that knows how to love each other despite disagreement so that we can effectively love other people. God, I just thank you that you are a big God, a great God, and a God who loves us. In your precious and holy name, amen.